And the Americans, therefore, played a huge role pressing Britain to join a united European movement, which was, I think, fundamentally a peace project. It wasn't a federal project or an economic project, but a peace project designed to integrate Germany into the European Union. part of Europe. The question sounds a bit odd, but it's lurked in the background of Britain's relations with the European continent for decades. To many of our American friends, the Brexit vote of 2016 revealed a much longer history of diverging visions beyond just those at stake in the referendum that year. Vernon Bogdanor is one of Britain's foremost constitutional experts, which for a country without a real constitution does not mean that he lacks a working subject. His second to last book, argued for the UK to adopt one, and after delivering a series of lectures about Britain and Europe at Yale throughout 2019, those have now been turned into his latest book. And don't forget, if you like the show, remember to rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. It helps tremendously us reach out to a wider audience. Wonderful. Welcome to another episode of Uncommon Decency. Today we are very pleased to be joined by a uh, one of uh, the United Kingdom's foremost constitutional experts, Professor uh, Vernon uh, Bogdanor, although um, he likes to go by, by Vernon just for, for the sake of this episode. And he's um, fresh off uh, publishing his latest book. It's called Britain and Europe in a Troubled World. And um, it, it, is the, it, it originates in a, a series of lectures that Professor Bogdanor gave at Yale University, the Stimson Lectures on World Affairs throughout 2019. So that's about a couple of years back and they're now being um, turned into a book. And um, Vernon is just, uh, he's published it with uh, Yale Press. Um, just to give maybe folks a bit of uh, your background, um, Professor, you're, you teach at King's College at the Institute of uh, Contemporary British History there. Uh, you're also a professor of politics at the New College of the Humanities. Uh, you're also an emeritus professor at Oxford and, uh, and, an, and an emeritus uh, fellow uh, precisely at, at um, Brasenose College at the University of Oxford. We were really keen on having you on uh, for, for on our podcast, Professor, because you've, uh, you've played a very important role in explaining to our American friends across the pond what the um, historical relationship has been between uh, the UK and, um, and, Europe, and the rest of Europe um, leading up to the Brexit vote, and, and I, I still believe that the Brexit vote is, uh, in some corners of the, the United States, not very well understood. It certainly was very disconcerting to a lot of our American friends. And one of the things you do in the book, which I think is so important, is just um, take a step right back and explaining some of these uh, historical undercurrents uh, behind the history of this this relationship. Now, I wanted to begin... Um, Vernon, by just asking you, can you give us a little bit of, of the background here on what you're thinking around these issues has been, uh, what, some, what some of these lectures were about, and uh, what, um, what, what you've, essentially what you've tried to explain to our American friends so they can better understand uh, Britain and Europe? Well, first, let me thank you for that generous introduction, very generous introduction. And you kindly introduced me as a constitutional expert. Well, I expect Americans might say it's quite easy to be a constitutional expert in a country which doesn't have a constitution. When I was at Oxford, uh, unkind friends sometimes said, well, a constitutional expert in Britain is just a historian who's given his telephone number to the journalists. So um, a constitutional expert's perhaps a bit double-edged. But you're quite right. These lectures were delivered to Americans at Yale last year about Brexit. Um, and I was trying to show that it was of importance to America. Now, uh, some people have compared Brexit to the election of President Trump in 2016, but I think Brexit in a way is more fundamental because the election of President Trump is, as we've seen, a temporary uh, phenomenon, some would say blip in the American system. But Brexit is a very profound constitutional, political and economic revolution in Britain and will certainly affect Americans who ought to consider it very carefully. Because, of course, the experience of America with Europe goes back a long way. It began, in fact, at the beginning of the 20th century, when there was nearly a war between Germany and France in 1911 over Morocco. 
And in that conflict, Britain supported France because of the Entente. And the former president of America, Theodore Roosevelt, said to the German ambassador, you know, if there'd been the conflict, America would not have been neutral. And uh, the ambassador said, but isn't that a bit contrary to Monroe Doctrine? And Roosevelt said, not at all. He said, we've relied on Britain to be the balance of power, the balancing power in Europe. But if Britain can no longer perform that role, America will have to do it. Indeed, America has now become the balancing factor in the whole world. And that, of course, was a remarkable prediction of 20th century history, because twice in the 20th century, America had to step in to rescue Europe from a German attempt to dominate it. And without American help, it's very possible that Germany would have succeeded. So there's a huge American stake in Europe. In 1966, President de Gaulle asked for the American troops that were in France under NATO to leave France. And American President Lyndon Johnson said, do you want us to remove the cemeteries as well? Because the graves of 60,000 American soldiers in France. Now, after the Second World War, Americans came to the view, as, uh, along with uh, some Europeans, that Europe would never be permanently at peace with the balance of power philosophy and competition between nation states. And the Americans, therefore, played a huge role in helping to integrate Europe and pressing Britain to join a united European movement, which was, I think, fundamentally, it's often forgotten, a peace project. It wasn't a federal project or an economic project, but a peace project designed to integrate Germany into the European Union. And that is of fundamental importance to America, because after all, some Americans might have thought the murder of the heir to the Austrian throne in 1914 had nothing to do with them. The conflict about the city of Danzig in 1939 had nothing to do with them. And in fact, it did. They were both brought into those European conflicts. So it's as important to Americans as to Europeans that Europe remains stable and at peace. And Vernon, this is, if I may, this is this is incredibly um, fascinating, and it's um, it, it's also why we were uh, we were so glad to have you on, is because you you trace the history of the Europe that we're in a way stuck with today to the long intellectual history of how these powers have um, um, sought to relate to one another and the the way that you piece uh, the United States. Uh, into the balance of power in Europe, all the way back, not to the post-World War II um, uh, status quo, but to, but all the way back to that, um, to, to, the, to the start of the 20th century is, is really re revealing. And I think, uh, I, I suspect that virtually nobody in our audience will have heard of those initial uh, facts that you started off with. And I, I wonder if, um, if we can maybe turn here to something that um, Americans will also appreciate hearing is, and I think you, you get into some of this in the book, is when um, Britain joined uh, the European, what was then the European Economic Community, there, um, there perhaps wasn't really so much uh, in, the, in the way of a debate about this, but re retrospectively, it seems like a decision was made to, um, to embed uh, the United Kingdom within uh, Europe, within this emerging uh, single market and whatnot. And that was at least partly done at the expense of a different orientation that Britain could have taken that some of the people that supported Brexit in 2016 are now urging Britain to take with the whole this whole notion of global Britain and whatnot, the, the Anglosphere. But it, it seems to me, and I, I think was it um, uh, Prime Minister uh, Harold uh, Macmillan, I, I believe, said something to the effect that we are now the Greeks and the Americans are, or was it we are now the, the Greeks and uh, in this Roman Empire, right? So the the idea that there had there was a continuing thread of um, English-speaking nations uh, promoting um, liberty and democracy and rule of law uh, worldwide, and that with uh, Britain's post-colonial um, state having given up uh, its colonies, now it, it was now America's turn to uh, pick up the, the torch. So um, are, are we now essentially going back to a Britain that is more anchored in the Anglosphere? And um, is, is this essentially what how things should have worked out? Well, We've always been a, a bit ambivalent about Europe. And my book, which you kindly mentioned a few moments ago, is called Britain and Europe in a Troubled World. 
But of course, whatever the politics, we are geographically part of Europe. We often speak of Britain leaving Europe, but we're geographically in Europe. What we mean is leaving the continent. So the way we talk shows our ambivalence because, of course, we've been brought into European affairs. We were brought in by two world wars, but we weren't wholly involved. Um, we could look at 1940, unlike the French, uh, not as a defeat, but as a chance to fight again because we were an island. And uh, it's symptomatic that the moments that have most influenced British feeling have been those where we stood alone against a hostile continent, against Napoleon or against Hitler. So you said um, a few moments ago, well, we became embedded in Europe, but if I may say so, although we were largely responsible for creating the internal market, uh, we never really became embedded in Europe in the sense in which the Europeans saw it. Um, the purpose of the European Union, uh, it was said by a French foreign minister, Robert Schumann, in the late 1940s, it was to link countries which had a common destiny. In other words, they felt that they were united in their approach. Now, Britain never felt that common destiny. We joined partly because, as you implied, we'd run out of other options, but also for economic benefits, which we hoped we'd get. In other words, our membership was pragmatic, utilitarian. So it wasn't quite the same as those of members of the continent who formed the uh, European Union in the late 1950s. Now, you raise the question about America, which, of course, is fundamental. And we had the view, perhaps illusion, you may say, that we had a special relationship with America after the war. That may have been true for a few years. After all, France and Italy after the war were fairly unstable. Germany was an untried democracy, frankly. No one knew what would happen there, whether it would be successful or not, a success that it had become. But that special relationship was shown to be an illusion at the time of Suez, when Britain and France had to withdraw from an expedition, a military expedition to Egypt because of American hostility. And as you say, Harold Macmillan said we could be the Greeks to the Americans, Romans, which was a bit condescending, but perhaps the Americans didn't need Greeks. And I think there's still a lot of um, uh, misconception in Britain about the special relationship. Another factor which I think was important was our imperial past, uh, the Commonwealth and so on, which we at first thought might be a power grouping. But of course, it isn't. It's a valuable institution, but it's not a power grouping in the sense that Europe is. So uh, there's been an ambivalence about British attitudes. And because our attitude was utilitarian and pragmatic, when it seemed not to be working for us, we said, well, we're off. Now, I think, frankly, the, uh, the idea of the Anglosphere, which you mentioned, is really pie in the sky. I mean, what it would mean is that Britain became a kind of what some people call Singapore, but I think is much more Australia and New Zealand, because when we joined European communities in the 1970s, New Zealand and Australia had to find new markets. And under Labour governments, governments of the left, they decided to do so by a free trade, uh, economically liberal policy. And after a lot of disruption, that proved successful. Uh, New Zealand has many fewer farms, but it has its own wine, for example. Now, uh, could we follow such a policy? It would mean lowering taxation, personal corporate taxation, to encourage entrepreneurs to invest here, less regulation, lower subsidies, um, free trade. Now, such a market policy might just, though I doubt it, have been possible before COVID. It's not possible with COVID, which is leading governments to quite opposite policies of greater state intervention, not, remove the, not removing the state from the market. And given all the economic problems which COVID is leading, unemployment and bankruptcy and so on, the last thing people want is a disruptive policy of economic liberalism uh, and uh, removal of subsidies and regulation. So I think, frankly, the only logic of Brexit was, as it were, a fourth term of Margaret Thatcher. And I just don't think that is now possible, frankly. I think that one of the effects of COVID 
is to undermine the neoliberal market philosophy. And Bern, I want to I want to delve slightly deeper into into just what you've hinted at there. One of the things you do in the book is you um you explain uh, uh, the debate leading up to the Brexit vote as I quote um, rooted in um, the prime conflict of our time, as you call it, and and you explain there's this sort of dispute between the competing fates of liberalism and nationalism. And and to your point there, what you just explain about what the future course for UK economic policy is going to be and just how much more liberal it can turn in order to, to reap the benefits of this regained independence or, or sovereignty, call it what you will. But uh, it seems like one of the things we tend to miss, and this is as true of the Americans as it is of the continental Europeans, is within the Brexiteers, right, there wasn't a, any sort of unity, philosophical unity of what we were what we were going to do with this newfound sovereignty that you you had different shades of of um, nationalism if you want to call it that within the the brexit camp right you had um people who essentially saw brexit as a chance to um um to um uh, uh dig in on this sort of economic ultra liberalism a chance to lower trade barriers cut subsidies as you said right um rid britain of the european super state uh, but on the other hand, there's also a, another side to Brexit, which is a, a chance to, um, I mean, Brexit essentially, as you've seen with Boris Johnson's election, has been a winning argument in, in the North, uh, in constituencies that, that were traditionally uh, labor dominated, right? So um, I'll just I'll just begin by asking you, how did you see those two different kind of sides of Brexit playing out when the debate was, was unfolding? And, and where do you think we stand uh, now? You're absolutely right. The foot soldiers of Brexit, the voters in particularly in the northeast of England, were voting for greater social protection and particularly limitations on immigration. But most of the leaders of the Brexit campaign were, as you imply, economic liberals. They wanted something quite different, which would give less social protection in a more globalized world. The foot soldiers wanted protection against globalization. Now, in my opinion, the only way Brexit can be a success is through those policies of economic liberalism, as I said a moment ago. Now, you mentioned British nationalism, and I think that's frankly sometimes overdone. After all, we are one of the few major powers in Europe where there's no radical nationalist party, no radical right party represented in Parliament. Uh, you contrast France with a very large Front National element. Germany, the official opposition, is the alternative for Deutschland. Many other countries have those sorts of parties, the Swedish Democrats, the Italian League, and so on. Britain doesn't. So I think Britain remains liberal in a political sense, uh, much more so perhaps than many people realise, a, a bulwark of political liberalism. Now, um, President Macron is also a strong political liberal, and he has said that Europe does face a choice between what you call perhaps uh, liberalism and nationalism, but you might call populism, illiberalism, whatever you call it. But he um, instanced Hungary's Viktor Orban as a leader of illiberal democracy. And he said, rightly in my view, that Europe is facing a struggle between liberal democracy, of which he's a champion, and illiberal democracy, which is very nationalistic. And the great danger, of course, is of nationalism returning to Europe. And that means conflict, not between France and Germany. Their issues are settled long ago. And even if the EU broke up, they would still remain at peace. But in the, in the Western Balkans, perhaps particularly, I think the breakup of Yugoslavia offers a horrible picture of what would happen if we have national and ethnic conflicts in Europe again. And I feel, I, I was involved with this a bit because I was involved in helping to draw up the constitution of Kosovo and the hatreds between Muslims and Slavs was really astonishing. And it makes the problems of Northern Ireland look actually quite manageable by comparison. And um, the only thing really, or one of the things at least, stopping them from fighting was the hope they would both get into the European Union, which it's like the old Austro-Hungarian Empire before the First War, what the empire tried to be a roof over the nationalities. Fundamental, not so much in Western Europe, but in Central Eastern Europe and in the Balkans. And we should never forget that. Well, because in, in your book, by, by the end, you quote um, Mitterrand, who said, Le nationalisme, c'est la guerre. Nationalism means war. Um, but 
what, what, what we've seen how nationalism can lead to war quite, quite obviously over the past century, it isn't completely obvious to me that supranationalism automatically means peace. I mean, we've, we've seen over the past few years how within the EU we've seen considerable tensions among the north versus the south, the east versus the west. Just the other day, you had Hungary and Poland veto the coronavirus fund. Um, how, how did we go from nationalism equals peace to what we have nowadays, which is it seems like everyone is at everyone's throats? You're absolutely right. If supranationalism is pushed too far, it can be as worrying or almost as worrying as nationalism put too far. And the European Union has to balance between them. There was a very remarkable Bruges lecture by Angela Merkel in 2010. It's not as much noticed as Margaret Thatcher's rather iconic Bruges lecture of 1988, but it's as important in my view. And she said there wasn't just one method of building Europe through supranationalism. There were two, the intergovernmental and supranational. And the important thing is the balance between them. Now, in my view, some of the troubles of Europe have come because the EU has come to entrench on matters which people do believe should be the responsibility of national government, in particular immigration, migration, and the euro. And it's interesting that COVID has led to the breakdown, really, of the Schengen system. So I think there the balance has got out of kilter, and Europe should concentrate much more not on integration, but on more efficiency, improving what's already there, and building up an intergovernmental organisation, particularly on defence. And that means, in my view, downgrading the role of the Commission, which is not elected and which has the sole power of legislative initiative in the uh, European Union, and I think which makes many people feel uneasy. Yeah, and I think I think this is um, this is hugely important, uh, Vernon. The distinction you draw. There's always been these two di- these two um, parallel tracks of um, of European integration. On one side, we've had elected national governments that are accountable to, to their parliaments and ultimately to their people coming together at these monthly EU Council meetings that where some of the bigger fish get fried, some of the bigger stuff gets gets hashed out. And on the other hand, we've got these uh, unelected, uh, well, I mean, opaque, unaccountable institutions, certainly unelected, unless you take the Spitzenkandidaten or uh, whatever it is uh, to be a, a, a fair way of electing uh, the commission. But if uh, there's these two different tracks, and as you said, um, the EU doesn't seem to have balanced um, the two out um, in a way that seems fair to, to most Europeans. And I, I wonder if, uh, I, I believe I was really interested in one of the reviews that your book um, has gotten from uh, Theodore uh, Darlingpool uh, in, in uh, Law and Liberty. One of the things he takes issue with is um, is what Francois has just asked you about, this idea that um, yes. Um, well, first of all, I, I'll just take the opportunity to kind of go over his, his argument. On one hand, he says, uh, right, fair enough. The initial orientation of the EU was to make war um, uh, unfeasible. And certainly you saw that in the, the original uh, orientation of this coal and steel community, uh, or at least the Franco-German conflict unfeasible. Now, is it really true that the peace that we've enjoyed now for five or six decades is ultimately an exclusively... Um, owed to the EU. I'm, I'm, not, I'm not entirely sure that's true. I mean, I think we enjoy peace just because the peoples of the different nations of Europe have evolved towards embracing peaceful relations. And uh, Germany, which was uh, the main worry of, of Europeans, um, there's, no, uh, there's no threat of war on, on that front. And, and, um, so he, and, and then he follows that up with saying, you know, if, if nationalism means war, as Mitterrand said, it doesn't necessarily follow that supranationalism mean, means peace, as, as Francois was saying. That's one thing. On, on the other hand, he does say that Jean Monnet, uh, like in the, the founding generation, um, was never too fond of the intergovernmental track. They, they, they kind of foresaw what we've seen this week with a Hungarian, Poli- with a Hungarian and Polish veto. Uh, veto. He, he, essentially, Monet was very fond of having this sort of executive commission, uh, a very like a very unilateral kind of single motion uh, direction of travel that was going to be dictated by this commission. And he didn't really trust the nations of Europe to get together 
in an intergovernmental fashion and to hash out policy. Uh, I wonder if you have any thoughts on that. Yes. Well, uh, this is a good point, which I was going to make myself, that the European unity movement was conceived in the 1940s and 50s in a much more deferential era. And there was distrust of the people because of the experiences of mass support for fascism and Nazism. And uh, Monet says in his memoirs, the epigraph says, we are not building a union of states, but of peoples. But the people he had in mind were the elites who would construct it without it being noticed through economic integration, that it would somehow wake up one morning to have a united Europe after all sorts of measures of economic integration without really being aware of any major step towards it. That might have been always unrealistic. It could have been realistic, perhaps for the six founding members, certainly isn't realistic with 27 members today. And the problem with the European Parliament, as you were implying earlier, is it can't have the same relationship to the European peoples as national parliaments with their peoples because it's too remote geographically and institutionally. And people don't feel the same attitudes towards Europe that they do nationally. For example, if in the French Parliament, uh, the vote one or the other, the minority say, well, we don't like it, but we'll accept it. We'll perhaps get to power next time and be able to reverse it or do something different. And similarly in Britain or Germany, Spain, elsewhere. But they don't feel that in Europe. That's not a, a feeling that people have. They say, well, if something goes wrong, it's against the interest of my particular country. I don't like it. And it's a quite different attitude. There's no European sense in, in the way that perhaps Robert Schumann was trying to build up the sense of common destiny. It isn't quite there yet. It may take a long time. We have to remember unity is often very difficult. America didn't get it till after the Civil War, even though by contrast with Europe, everyone there speaks the same language. Switzerland and Germany had civil wars before, before they were united. So it's very difficult to get that sort of union. And I think for the foreseeable future, the EU will remain primarily an intergovernmental organisation, but with a difference, because it'll be an organisation that takes a European perspective, not just a national one. That's very crucial. If it had been there in 1914, I think we might not have had a war. If every country had said, now, what's in the best interest of Europe, not what's in the best interest of Germany, France, Russia, Britain, or anywhere else, I think we might have avoided the war, some possibility. Now, you ask about what's kept the peace. Well, the obvious answer is deterrence of the Soviet Union led by the United States. Now, whether the United States would have been prepared to do that if the European countries were still squabbling is an open question. They pressed very hard for European unity, and martial aid was given on the condition that the Europeans got their act together. Uh, furthermore, I think the EU has um, was a pole of attraction for the ex-communist states of Central and Eastern Europe. And some people say, rightly, that Hungary and Poland are a bit illiberal. I think without the EU, they'd be much more illiberal. There'd be no constraints at all on what they were doing. And I think the EU hasn't been strong enough with them. But nevertheless, there are some constraints on the way they act. So just one point, you talked about how because we are a, a nation, when we are defeated politically by the other side, we accept this results and we move on, hoping that we win the next election. And this doesn't work at the European level because people wouldn't be ready to accept that they are being put in a minority because the Hungarians, the Czechs and the Germans are working together. Now, this this is essentially the question of a European demos, a European people. And what strikes me, because I, I am not completely convinced we'll, we'll see such a, a people, a European demos in the next generation, but if it was feasible, if it was feasible, there's, 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 there's some common values and a common tradition that we have in common. Uh, it's a history made by Christianity. It's a history made by the, by the Romans, by the Greeks. It's a history made scarred by the great totalitarianism of the 21st century, 20th century. And we've got all these all these values. And what I'm surprised is for, for kind of people who you are would say I'm, I'm European before I'm French or I'm European before I'm, I'm Belgian or whatever. They're very uncomfortable with the idea that we Europeans have common values. You know, if we take a, a very uh, concrete example is when Macron was, has been fighting the past few months, uh, uh, weeks of, of freedom of speech, 
which, you know, if there is one value which should be shared by all Europeans, it should be this one. It's a very, very base fun, foundational value that, can, that goes back for, for centuries. And if we're not even capable of defending that con- European common value, do we have any right to expect a European demos? That's a, it's a very good question. And uh, Europe must do a lot more to defend these values, as you say, of freedom of speech. And I'm sorry that France hasn't had more support in Britain on that. Uh, important issue. It's fair to say the European Union now has its own charter of fundamental rights, which lays down these values and which the courts can protect right across Europe. That is very important. But all I would say is that to maintain these common values, you don't necessarily need an integrated Europe, a sense of a united Europe in the way that, say, America is united. You can maintain them in an intergovernmental Europe. And I suppose what I'm really saying is that the profit of modern Europe is not so much Jean Monnet, but uh, Charles de Gaulle. And um, I think it was the great French novelist André Malraux who said of de Gaulle that he was a man of the day before yesterday and of the day after tomorrow. And I think that is profoundly true. I mean, his mistake and that of other leaders in the Fifth Republic has been to try and marginalise Britain in Europe. And that's a mistake for Macron because we are politically liberal as he is. And Britain is needed for purposes of defence if Europe is to be a power in the world. And this was a second motive behind the idea of a united Europe. It wasn't just to keep the peace, but also that Europe, the European voice shouldn't be swamped by the superpowers, by America and the Soviet Union, today China. But there should be a European voice in the world as well that is to be heard. And that European voice is more likely to be heard by united Europe. And I fear with Britain out of Europe, the danger is that America, particularly in the Biden administration, that America may listen more to the European Union than it does to Britain. That's a worry. Yeah. And, and, and I, I'm really glad we're, we're in a way we're coming back uh, full circle towards uh, Brexit and um it's really interesting uh, what you said there, Professor, and I, I think we all share that that fear and that worry. I think it would be a massive mistake for the Biden administration to play uh, the EU against Britain. I, I think on the issue of uh, the um, the um, the future relationship between the two, I think uh, Biden's team has already made rather clear that they will that they will that, that, that they they'll be happy with whatever. Uh, Barney or whoever hooks um, up. Um, I certainly hope that you know the, the special relationship between the UK and the US is so important. The security co- cooperation is so important that Britain is going to remain a major piece of the transatlantic relationship. But um, but this is one of the downsides uh, of Brexit that we're no longer we no longer have this uh, united front where we can weigh on global issues together. And, and, and that's one of the, the, the reason I'm, I'm happy we were, we're back to Brexit is because that was also one of the very few things that you could get De Gaulle and Churchill and that sort of generation together on is the idea that we should have a united voice on the very big issues that matter in the world. And then we got lost in some of the details, right? What kind of special shape this union should take and what its internal policy should be. But on that one thing, you did have agreement. And um, do you think the UK is going to still, the world is going to still see the UK as part of Europe in that fundamental sense that it's one geopolitical block with one um, with one course of action on, on world affairs? Well, um, de Gaulle believed that Britain could not become European. And in a way, we'll never know the extent to which he was right or wrong. But I do think it was self-defeating for France to take the attitude it's done uh, it, it took um, at that time, if de Gaulle wanted to fulfil his vision of Europe being a power in the world. The problem was he wanted a Europe that was independent of America. Harold Macmillan wanted a Europe that was interdependent with America. So that was, but still, if Europe was to be a power in the world, Britain should be there. And I don't think, I mean, in one way, President Macron um, shares the Gaullist view because he sees Brexit as merely an opportunity um, for the financial and business services of France. He doesn't always see the geopolitical aspect, though it's fair to say in his Sorbonne speech of 2017, a very important speech, he said that he hoped to see a Europe of concentric circles 
in which some countries, perhaps France would be one of them, would decide to integrate further, but other countries might not. And he said in that Europe of concentric circles, he hoped there would be a place for Britain. And I do think that is important, that we have a very close relationship with Britain, in, with, with Europe in the future, even though we're out of the European Union for the time being, at least. The more general problem to which you draw attention when you talked about Churchill and de Gaulle is that because of the war, they were very concerned to secure stability and a system of international rules. Now we're taking it, we're taking it for granted after 75 years of peace in Europe. And some people think, well, a shake-up wouldn't do too much harm. People thought that in 1914. It's very dangerous. I think President Trump thought that a shake-up would be a good thing. You can't control a shake-up. It's very, very worrying. And we have this trend of nationalism too strong in Europe, in my view. And um, it was drawn attention to by Christine Lagarde, the head of the IMF, who said it's a paradox that as world economies are becoming more integrated, politics is becoming more fragmented and that produces a rather dangerous cocktail in the world and I think the European Union is needed to combat that and Britain is part of it. But Britain going alone or isolated is a foolish notion I think and the Americans wouldn't take much notice of it. But Britain must be part of Europe in a broader sense. We're not in the EU but contributing particularly to European defence. So to move on a question of Brexit, I thought it was a very good comparison. It was a, I think it was a political article by Tom McTague a few years back. Where he compared um, he compared Brexit to a French Revolution, and he had a lot of fun imagining uh, Jacob Rees-Mogg as Robespierre and Boris Johnson as Danton, and, and the list goes on. It was very very interesting, but uh, you know the self-radicalizing, um, uh, ever purer, uh, hard Brexit, uh, forcing formerly radicals into becoming moderates and into becoming traitors. But to some extent, is there also a case to be made that among among some of the Remainers? There was also a sense of schadenfreude of seeing Theresa May get humiliated at European councils. There's a kind of feeling that there were some of the French emigres in the French Revolution who no longer recognized their country, felt they were expelled, and therefore were kind of strangely wishing for its country to be as, as humiliated as possible and wishing for its defeat. How, how, do you, how do you see this country divided between those, between those emigres, between those revolutionaries? How do, you th- how do you think that country can heal from this? And where is the Brexit? Uh, where is Brexit, Brexit? Napoleon? Do we have a Napoleon who comes in and, and makes a compromise between the revolutionary period and comes back to a more organised and orderly period? Yes. Well, Brexit was a divisive issue. I think many people are in danger of exaggerating the divisiveness in British politics. Uh, there isn't the same feeling in Britain between Remainers and Brexiteers as there is in America over Trump and Biden. There isn't a feeling anymore that something's illegitimate mm-hmm. or that people shouldn't be there. It's not like the French Revolution from that point of view. Frankly, I think it's much less, Britain is much less divided than France, which is divided between Macron and the Front National on the one side and the left wing under Mélenchon on the other. I think France is more divided. Or Germany, as I've said earlier, with the AFD as the official opposition, the alternative for Deutschland. I think Britain is a much more stable country than many broad appreciate. And they're misled often by the rhetoric of our political divisions and political argument, which is very robust and sometimes raucous. But the country is basically very unified at bottom, in my opinion. And uh, people spoke a lot about the divisions in Britain in the 1930s. When it came to war, everyone stuck together, same in 1914. And I'm tempted to um, remind people of something that Adam Smith said when the American colonies broke off in the 18th century. And a young man said to him, this will be the ruin of the nation. And Adam Smith replied, young man, there's a lot of ruin in a nation. And um, I think it's not like the French Revolution. It's a profound change, a radical change in Britain. One shouldn't underestimate that. But it's been carried out peacefully and in accordance with liberal norms. So um, French Revolution isn't quite right. And there's, there's not really what you had in France for centuries, perhaps only overcome in the Fifth Republic, a division about the nature of the regime which should be governing the country. And there's no dispute about that. Uh, which uh, the French Revolution did lead to that. And the 
been about, I think, 16 constitutions in France since 1789. Yep. Uh, none of that. In, it's yep. very stable and very deeply liberal, in my view. And if you take the Scottish National Party, which I'm strongly opposed to, which wants independence of Scotland, disagree with them. But if they did, if Scotland did become independent, it would be a liberal and stable country like the rest of Britain. Piggybacking on, on what uh, you've just said, Vernon, it, it's such an important distinction, what you've just drawn between regime politics and normal politics. And it's it's heartening to see that when, when we're seeing America evolve down this, this very worrying path of you know, um, the powers that be are illegitimate and that sort of that sort of thinking. It, it's at least heartening to see that Brexit was incredibly divisive at the time, but the people who would have us go back to membership and overturn the result of that vote are are a minute portion of Parliament and, and the electorate. Right? There's there's essentially the um, the realization the realization that this is the people's will and that we need to get on with it and. I, I'm perhaps a little less um, confident that on the European side, you have that sort of attitude. And um, one of the things you see in in, in the European Parliament, for instance, is, is, is um, people from, say, Central Europe and some of the um, some of the political groups that have historically been very friendly to the Tory party, for instance, uh, are pressuring the commission to uh, soften on, on Britain and to, to try to do more to seek a common ground solution that um, that maximizes be the benefits of this new arrangement. And and, and I, I just worry that, I mean, there, there's a lot of uh, people fear that the commission is going into the, these, has gone into these negotiations with a very sour sort of um, negotiating strategy. But um, I, I wonder if, if there's anything, um, if there's anything you can tell us about that. And, and then, and then after that, I think Francois may have a, one last question. Well, the commission is mandated by the Council of the European Union. Barnier is often treated in Britain as an independent actor or a villain or whatever, but he's mandated. And the mm. Commission obviously wants to, sorry, the, the Council yep. obviously wants to protect the interests of the EU against Britain. Now, Britain's in a difficult position because it's like uh, leaving a tennis club and saying, uh, I don't want to pay the subscription anymore and I don't like the rules. But I would still like to play on the tennis courts, if you don't mind. No, I'd like to play with you on mm. favourable terms. And the EU says it's not wholly unreasonable. Well, look, you can't accept this, expect the same benefits you had before when you're not prepared to accept the obligations. Otherwise, the EU would collapse. There must be some sort of a trade-off. And this debate is about what the trade-off should be. I, my suspicion, I guess, it probably may be out of date by the time this is heard, is that there'll be some sort of a deal uh, at the last moment, but I, I may be completely wrong. But it's also fair to say um, that any Brexit, in a way, must be a hard Brexit. There's no point leaving the European Union and adopting the same rules that you had before. The only point in, in leaving is to have different rules that benefit mm. you as a country. And so there's a balance to be had between that and we have to remember the EU is our biggest trading partner. And even if we get a deal with America, um, America, we have far less trade with America than we do with the European Union. Um, so we, we do need a trade agreement in, in my view. It's also fair to say that attitudes in Britain have become more liberal since mm. Brexit, because at the time of Brexit, immigration was the key issue that people were worried about. Now is a much more favourable attitude to immigration. And what people were against, it appears, was not so much immigration, but uncontrolled immigration under the free movement principle. And now that it's under the control of Westminster, people say, well, immigration does perhaps do us a bit of good and we ought to welcome immigrants perhaps a bit more than we have yeah. in the past. So um, it, it's a very complex discussion. But you can understand the EU's position if you're not a member of the tennis club you can't expect the same privileges as the members get. So one quick question. You're mm. a constitutional expert. And I, and I know the little joke you made at the start saying uh, uh, there's not much um, praise of being constitutional experts in the UK. But still, it's a very, you're not just a historian. You're definitely an expert on legal matters. And for what is so, so strange for someone who's French like me and who's seen six different constitutions over the last two centuries is that the UK doesn't have a proper constitution it has magna carta has habeas corpus has a bill of rights 
Um, but it doesn't have a constitution like the Americans would imagine it or the French would imagine it or the Germans would imagine it. And do you think um, the chaos of the past few years, you know, when Boris Johnson tried to prorogate parliaments and all these things, do you think that the political upheaval of the past few years um, necessitate that, you, that the UK creates its own constitution? Well, you've just summarised the view expressed in the book I wrote before the book of my Yale lectures, which came out last year. It's called Beyond Brexit Towards a British Constitution. I'd say it came out last year. I think there's a paperback edition in, in January. And my argument was exactly what you suggested. And the important point is this. I, I said we haven't got a constitution. But while we were in the EU, we did in effect have a constitution because we were bound by mm -hmm. EU law. And if we broke it, the European Court of Justice would step in. And that constitution meant that Westminster could no longer do what it liked. For example, Westminster couldn't restrict immigration if it liked because of the free movement principle. It couldn't impose a tariff on French goods and so on and so on. Now, that was strengthened with the EU Charter of Fundamental Rights, which came into effect some years ago and which Britain, Britain and Poland mistakenly thought they had an opt-out from. But in 2017, there was a landmark case, which ought to be better known, which was as important as the famous Factotain case of 1991, where it was uh, ruled by the court that Parliament could not pass a measure against EU law, the Merchant Shipping Act, restricting the role of Spanish fishermen in our waters. Of course, this is relevant with the current fisheries dispute. Now, the landmark case, which I mentioned, is the Ben Carbouche case in 2017, in which um, someone who worked in the Sudanese embassy complained about the conditions of work there and, and so on. And the embassy um, cited a British law which said that uh, they were really beyond the law. They couldn't be questioned because they had immunity. Now, the uh, British court said, well, you can't have that because everyone whose rights are affected is entitled to a remedy under the European Charter. And therefore, we're striking down mm. this British law and this lady is entitled to a remedy. So for the first time in British history, an act of parliament was disapplied, is the proper word, because it went against human rights. Now, we had then a protected constitution while we in the EU, leaving it we returned to an unprotected constitution, as we had before, which was characterised by Lord Hailsham in the 1970s as elective dictatorship. It means that Parliament can do what it likes. Now, we are one of a very small number of countries, democratic countries, without a constitution. The other two are New Zealand and Israel, so Israel is towards one. Now, every other country in the EU, of course, is under the mm. EU constitution. America has a constitution, so on. So the question you have to ask is our MPs in Britain so much more sensitive to human rights than those in America, France, Germany, Spain, elsewhere, that they should be entrusted with this vital function, important function, and I think they aren't. So I do think we need some protection of human rights. Even more urgently, I think Brexit, and even more COVID in some ways, has shown we need a constitution uh, in relation to the nations and regions of Britain, in relation to devolution. Uh, a charter, if you like, setting out the rights and duties of Westminster in relation to Scotland, Wales, Northern Ireland, the English regions, and so on. Because so far we have um, done devolution in an unplanned and ad hoc way in response to political pressures. We need to be clearer about what powers need to remain at the centre and what can be devolved. So on all these arguments, I think we need a British constitution. The logic seems to me impeccable. But I have to say, I'm not holding my breath that we'll get one in the near. Well, that's that's a that's a great note to, to end on, and and I appreciate you mentioned your your previous book. Um, obviously, your uh, last your latest book is just out, and people will I think will will get a huge kick out of it on both sides of the pond. We also encourage there. There's also uh, all of the lectures you gave a professor at, at Yale throughout 2019 are up on YouTube, and people can go and watch those. If, if, um, if, if the book isn't out yet and, and where they're from or, or whatever. Uh, but Beyond Brexit Towards the UK Constitution is your prior book. And um, 
and we're really happy that we've uh, that we've covered a, an awful lot of ground with with you today, and we appreciate you sharing your your time and your thoughts uh, with us. Thank you. I have enjoyed it. So, Professor Bogdano is out. Uh, Jorge, what did you make of it? Well, you know, I think there's there's so much uh, to unpack. Um, I, I think I think first of all, the the, um, the great benefit of his book is that it doesn't uh, exclusively focus on uh, Brexit itself, uh, but rather um, mm-hmm. sees Brexit as a culmination of a relationship that was never really uh, smooth uh, from from the first place, and it yeah. kind of walks you through this very uh, troubled history of diverging visions, as you said in the, in the introduction. And I think, um, look, I, I was thinking about it. I was, I was mulling over in my head uh, what the possible outcome of all this is going to be with Biden and the White House. I think a lot of the policies towards Europe that you're going to see in the next few, after Biden uh, takes over, are going to either vin- vindicate um, essentially uh, the pro-European Brits and the Europeans who've always argued that Britain was always a structuring uh, force within Europe and that it just didn't belong anywhere but in Europe. So you're either going to have a vindication of that by having a Biden administration that is going to give a lot more attention to Europe instead of the UK. And in a way, that would be just an even greater penalty to Brexit. Um, Although, Mm -hmm. obviously, that's going to be there's going to be less room for that kind of penalty with Biden in the White House than, um, uh, excuse me, I got that the wrong way around. Uh, Trump would have been the more pro-British of, of the two candidates. He was very clear from the get-go that he was going to give preferential treatment to the UK for a UK-US FTA, right? that he was going to fast-track negotiations for a trade deal, um, and that he was, and, and Trump was always very, obviously, and we've discussed this in, in past episodes, uh, was always very um, demeaning towards EU leaders. Um, yeah. But I think Biden, in, in uh, on the other hand, can also... Um, take a different sort of tack where he would um, not disregard the special relationship. I think one of the things that uh, has bipartisan support in, in, in Washington is that uh, the UK-US relationship is just so important in terms of security, in terms of mm-hmm. the culture is so close, the, the ties, the, the relationships are so deep uh, that under no administration would it ever make sense for the US uh, to disregard that relationship in favor of um, of closer transatlantic ties, it just wouldn't make sense. So I, I, I'm I'm really looking forward to seeing how all of that's going to play out and uh, how much of it is going to give reason uh, to the pro-European Brits and how much of it is going to, on the contrary, um, uh, uh, go in the opposite direction. Um, but um, yeah, what, what did you think? It was a it was such a broad ranging conversation. There's so much to unpack. But what are what are some of your reactions? Well, I'm going to bounce off of the idea of a special relationship because a special relationship is essentially the main reason why the French didn't want the English to join the European Community back in the 60s. Um, uh, he uh, Vernon Bogdan is right when he says that it's about agriculture, but it's also to a large extent because he saw the English as the Trojan horse of the Americans. Um, de Gaulle obviously saw the, the English as the Trojan horse of the Americans, and that's why he didn't want them in the EU. Um, and I think he, I might disagree with him on the idea that had de Gaulle been uh, generous towards the UK and led him into the, in the 60s, um, the UK could have become a Gaullist power on the side of the French. Um, yeah, that was an interesting counterfactual, yeah. wasn't it? He said that, he said that de Gaulle was... Um, it was wrong of him to oppose Britain's first application in the late '60s, I believe, and in the '70s with that. In this, um, when they joined the European Economic Community, I believe, uh, late '70s, '80s, right? Uh, he couldn't stop it anymore. He was no longer president. But had he accepted it, right, it would have totally changed the dynamic, right? Yeah, but I, I'm not sure I agree with him because um, I understand the argument, which is if you get the UK in, France and the UK align against the creation of a federal EU, which would have been favoured by other European states, you know, the Benelux states and, and maybe Germany. I, I agree with that part, but on economics, the French and the English don't see eye to eye. You know, the English are much closer to the Germans. So um, uh, so I'm not sure I totally agree with the idea that um, this act of generosity would have kind of changed the British politics. I... I I think I think it, I, I think I, I don't see that happening. 
So I think I think to some extent the goal was the goal's arguments about the Americans being a um, about the English being an American trying horse um, stand, and I think that in many areas um, we could see that the English and the French didn't see eye to eye on 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 Europe. So. Um, so yeah, but it's interesting to see that the special relationship has been. It was a main driver for De Gaulle to um, refuse the English twice. And I and I lo- it's a very I appreciate you mentioning that because if if you go all the way back to the start of a recording, he's what he starts off with is he says um, the common understanding of Europeans is that uh, the U.S. wanted to play a major role in European integration from the get go, starting in the fifties, because it wanted to uh, essentially keep a sort of a balance of power. And as you said. I mean, there was a lot of truth to the goal's fear that um, the UK was going to turn a tro- Trojan horse, because I think it was yeah. it was a deliberate policy of the state. Uh, I believe Dean Aikson's State Department or even uh, um, yeah. uh, Marshall State Department in the very in the very early years of the post war, it was a li- deliberate policy to leverage the special special relationship to um, yeah. be privy in a way to the to the conversations that were brewing at the time about a European project. And the U.S. didn't want to be sidelined from that. I mean, they had already put so much money into rebuilding Europe and it just it didn't want to feel left out. And the, the so, way and the way. Go ahead. Yeah, because I think generally the tension about with the U.S. about EU policy is that they want the EU not to squabble too much. No, especially, I mean, especially after World War Two, they wanted a. Uh, continent which wouldn't squabble too much. It was a condition for the Marshall Plan. Um, they wanted to be a relatively prosperous economic zone, so they could um, be a market for American products. But they're very always very uncomfortable with the idea that it might become a political rival. Um, and I think that's kind of a balancing act uh, the United States played on its on its European policy is they wanted a um, a peaceful continent, um, a prosperous continent. Um, but they're uncomfortable, not really sure how to feel about a powerful um, continent. Mm, yeah, um, yeah, and, and right, and and that segues right into De Gaulle's thinking, uh, which I thought was really interesting. Uh, inter- interesting how you described it because it it still it still permeates so much of French Euroscepticism. Yeah. And you and I have discussed about people in today's French Gaullist um, uh, move. Well. Um, the hairs of of, yeah. of uh, the goals thinking uh, today, people like uh, Philippe de Villiers, uh, Dupont-Aignan, uh, they they remain very skeptical of the EU because they they just they didn't trust it from the get go. Right. I mean, Philippe de Villiers came out with a book right a couple of years ago. Um, I know you're a big fan of his uh, theme park that he's got somewhere. Yeah, it's in, in, yeah. yeah, beautiful. But he's he came out with this very interesting book uh, a few a few a few years ago where he essentially he claims that he's been around uh, different like libraries and repositories of documents in like mm. Switzerland and California and whatnot and he's seen these documents that attest that uh, there was money flowing from the CIA towards uh, Jean Monnet and yeah. Robert Schuman and that it was all essentially a, a U- an American plot uh, that the the early uh, steps towards European integration through the steel, coal and steel community, that all of that was driven right out of the CIA and the State Department and the Ford Foundation and whatnot. Um, and um, and that is still, that permeates a lot of French Euroscepticism. I mean, yeah. uh, there are other arguments against, uh, there's other arguments made against your, uh, the EU in France. There's a lot of stuff around agriculture. There's a lot of stuff around, on both the left and right, there's so much uh, that's thrown out against the EU, but at the, from the very start, there was that suspicion that it was a tool of American domination over Europe. And De Gaulle obviously had a totally different vision. Um, he was, I think, he was primarily driven right by uh, sovereignism, right, a, a certain yeah. uh, idea of France being able and free to wield power um, it, to to keep the balance of power in the in Europe and to wield power in the colonies. And well, if you look America at the first was... Europe of the six, it looks very much like Napoleon's empire. Um, <laughs> right. It's not a surprise, right. you know. Um, yeah. um, so that was the idea that the EU could be, or the European community back then, could be leveraged for France to use on an international uh, arena. Yeah. Um, but there's always this kind of uncomfortable reality, which is um, if you actually want this leverage, you also might have to... Uh, make a few concessions, concessions for um, some kind of proto-federalism. 
Um, so it's kind of yeah. a compromise. It, yeah, and I think, and what's also very important, I, I hope you agree with this, what's also important that we shouldn't forget is the international context of it. De Gaulle wasn't just skeptical about U.S. dominance because of the EU. He was also, he also resented how uh, the U.S. sided with the Egyptians over the Suez yes. Canal crisis, right? Yeah. He, there was also that whole um, spat over atomic energy, right? Mm-hmm. Like France was already... Uh, already like an atomic, uh, like a like a nuclear power at the time, if if I remember correctly, and the the plan for the atomic Euro, uh, European Atomic um, Agency was to have that uh, know how shared across yeah. all the countries of Europe. I think the goal opposed it, but the Americans uh, supported it, and and again, all of those things go to show that he was suspicious. He resented uh, the Americans getting too involved in this, and. And in an interesting turn of events, what you see today with Macron is a turning, it's turning that philosophy on its head and saying, okay, we have Europe. There's no way for France to be a major player on world events outside of Europe. Mm-hmm. I mean, right, you sit at the, the UN Security Council, but um, that, that's kind of, that kind of goes with the territory. But you, uh, there, there's, there's no way you can, uh, I mean, we, we are stuck together. We're, we're this block. And we have, and the interesting thing about Macron's, um, um, idea of strategic autonomy, and you and I have discussed this, is that it's a way to transpose Gaulism to the European yeah. sphere. It's it's a Euro Gaulist. Yes, it's essentially if you if you take Macron's speeches on strategic autonomy and replace Europe with France, that could have very well been have been a De, a De Gaulle speech, right? Right. Like it's we we have to be autonomous. We have to be a strategic force. And we shouldn't depend on the Americans. Right. But it, again, it's it's the old idea of, of, of leverage. You know, we're using the EU as leverage, and um, and Macron is ready to give up a lot of things uh, in order to get this leverage. Now, the issue is there's a lot of countries within Europe which are less comfortable. First of all, with idea of the EU being leverage for for French ambitions, and um, that obviously is an uncomfortable idea. But I think a lot of countries are not so sure they want the EU to become this geopolitical actor. Um, so that's the issue. Um, mm. So, for example, you know, when 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 Macron is ready to make um, some concessions to make sure the Dutch will end up uh, signing on the um, uh, the coronavirus um, 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 funding uh, this summer, um, mm-hmm. be- because because the Dutch are less much less comfortable with this idea of this kind of federal Europe um, than than Macron is, he mm. has to end up giving a lot of, coughing up a lot of concessions. Um, so that's kind of mm. a, the price to pay. If, if if you're convinced that the EU is going to be this, this leverage for France, well, then you should accept it through compromises along the way. But um, the issue is yeah. a lot of countries within Europe are less comfortable, and so therefore they they you know they, they understand that France is desperate to get this um, uh, this more integrated Europe, and so they're going yeah. to try and make uh, France cough up as much as they can. And I, I wanted to go back to an earlier point: um, the the idea that uh, uh, you know Bogdan or um, Kind of goes over like right well why was de gaulle opposed to the uk joining in because the uk was he feared would be a trojan horse for american influence and i yeah. wonder to what extent de gaulle's thinking in the late 40s 50s um around the us was also shaped at least partly by the, his wartime experience i mean if you read um yes. his memory in much, the, yeah. his three tome uh memoirs his memoirs yeah. um De Gaulle was at loggerheads with Eisenhower and Churchill the entire time. I mean, yeah. Bogdanor, uh, Vernon said... Uh, well, especially Roosevelt. Yeah, yeah. Um, absolutely hated... Roosevelt hated his guts. <laughs> absolutely hated FDR's guts. Absolutely yeah. loathed the guy. But And then yeah. about Churchill, Vernon said he was the only Englishman that De Gaulle could respect. And that's... Yeah. Compar- I mean, comparatively, yes, that's true. Um, but even Churchill, I think... He, he resented the, I mean, throughout the war, de Gaulle felt like he didn't have a proper seat at the table. He felt like he was being treated like the Belgians and the Poles and the Dutch, like this government right. in exile that had no power, that shouldn't, right. that shouldn't even be among the allies. Like he felt like he was being sidelined. Right. He felt, and he fought so hard to be able to march on Paris, to be able to be seen as a major force within the allies. Because remember, to the seat of the National Security Council. 
Yeah, and, and yeah, and remember at the start of the when when the goal when um the 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 le, le conseil or whatever the the parliament votes in the the um, plenipotentiary powers or the le plan pouvoir to the Vichy government and the Vichy government surrenders, the goal goes yeah. into exile. He has no power. There's merely like a None. few a few local préfets or a few local people in the colonies that rally around him. He He's got absolutely no power to affect anything at all in France. It, it takes a long time for the resistance to build up within France. And even, even at the end of the war, the Americans didn't rely a lot on the resistance. They gave maybe a few weapons here and there, but it wasn't a major factor yeah. in the war. So throughout the war, the goal was like, damn, I'm like trying to elbow my way into this. Um, like he, was, he didn't get invited to the summits. A lot of the times, like he would like yeah. be trying to, to reach Belgium. out to FDR, he wouldn't get back to him. He he, yeah. he didn't want to be Poland. He didn't want to be Belgium. He wanted to be an allied force. Right, definitely. And um, and in 1943, uh, Roosevelt tried to sideline the goal for uh, Giraud. Giraud being this uh, top Vichy officer oh, yeah. Um, yeah. who had joined uh, yes. the Allied side in uh, 1942. Kind of a late bloomer, um, mm. and um, and uh, why was that? Because because yeah, like yeah, he, he Roosevelt didn't like the goal, and he thought Giroud would be more uh, manageable um, than the goal, um, and so oh, the goal narrowly ousted the coup uh, and stayed in in power. Um, but I think you know, um, it said on the back of his of his mind, and he very much talks a lot about. What could have happened had he not been so um, feisty? Um, uh, mm. France could have ended up being uh, administrated by a American governor, uh, just like Germany for for a while. Mm. Um, that could have been a nightmare scenario mm-hmm. you know, for 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 the goal. And um, had he not fought against it, it might have happened. It's not not it's not impossible. It's a it's a very manageable scenario. Um, so I think that definitely plays on the on the psyche mm-hmm. of the goal, which is. Um, the Americans want us to be not just allies, but kind of vassal states, and we need to avoid that as much as possible. Um, mm. you know. mm. So, anyways, it was a great yeah, conversation. Absolutely. And um, don't forget, if you like the show, remember to rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. It helps us tremendously to reach out to a wider audience. And uh, see you next week.